Well, good morning. It is uh, great to see you guys. For all you guys who are back for summer school, it is a great having you guys back in town. I know summer school may not be what you wanted to have draw you back, but we are at least excited to see you guys. All right, we're going to be in the book of Esther this morning. So if you have your Bibles open to the book of Esther, Contrary to popular opinion, Esther is not the name of your great-grandmother. It is a book of the Bible, all right? So uh, if you are unsure where Esther is, you can use your table of contents. It's all right, all right? But essentially, you'll want to look past all the big history books like Kings and Chronicles and Samuel, past Ezra, past Nehemiah, and you'll find the book of Esther. It's a small little book. If you've landed into the book of Job or Psalms or Proverbs, you've gone too far, all right? Uh, We're going to be in Esther chapter 4. So as you guys are turning there, let me just say, for you guys who have not had a chance to meet before, uh, my name's Trey Corey. I'm a college pastor here at Grace. Typically, spend most uh, Sundays in the fall and spring over at our Southwood campus, but kind of as we consolidate things uh, this year, uh, this summer at least, and can put uh, Anderson and Southwood together, it's a joy to get to be with you guys this summer, all right? We're going to be in Esther 4, and as one thing we may say to you guys too, as you kind of are here with us this summer, you may notice we are going to be in this auditorium, often maybe uh, in the middle of transitions or facility changes. So if we were to put a, pardon my, our dust sign out, we might. Uh, but notice, you'll kind of notice some things changing through the, uh, the summer, so excuse that as we go. But uh, we're excited to be with you guys this morning. We're going to be kind of walking through a series this summer uh, that we've entitled College Matters, all right? We're looking at kind of a series of standalone, pivotal, kind of topical issues or topics that we feel like college students are facing in and out often, and we want to kind of address those with you guys and have a chance to kind of hit some of these topics that maybe we don't have a normal chance to hit through the fall or the spring. And this morning we're going to hit the topic of uh, the search for God's will. Uh, kind of the, uh, the topic of discerning the will of God and in terms of decision making. That's where we're going to kind of go this morning, all right? Esther chapter 4. This may be a familiar story for some of you guys. It is, for whatever reason my wife mentioned to me, I have a giant crush on the book of Ruth. And here we are in Esther. I kind of have something for the Old Testament women, all right, of the Bible. But uh, we're going to be in Esther chapter 4 this morning. Uh, I'm going to pick it up for you guys. Esther chapter 4 verse 3, all right? Beginning in verse 3, you find this. Then in each and every province where the command of the decree of the king had come, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came, and they told her, and the queen writhed with great anguish. And she sent garments to cloth to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. And then Esther summoned Hathik from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathik went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict, which had been issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show Esther and inform her, and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther, and then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai, All of the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. And they related Esther's words to Mordecai. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all of the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Why don't you pray with me real quick. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it we have a written record of real life situations. 
of how you moved and how individuals responded to your movement. And I pray this morning, Lord, I pray that you'd teach us. I pray that you'd stretch us. I pray that you'd help us to see as you see. Father, I pray that you even simplify a lot of these concepts that we wrestle with as we think about your will, as we think about decision-making, as we think about your sovereignty, your calling, your direction. Father, I pray that you'd simplify some of this for us this morning, that you'd grant us a greater sense of freedom as we navigate through some of these things. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask for these things this morning through your son and by your spirit. Amen. Well, I will tell you guys, uh, growing up, I will tell you guys, I was not an avid reader, all right? Uh, I know no one has necessarily uh, presented an argument that was like anti-readings. That's just preposterous. Uh, but I never really wanted to necessarily pick up the books. So I had to be properly motivated, all right? So through school, whether it was pizzas or Cokes in school, that's kind of how I got motivated to read, all right? Uh, my parents were constantly always looking for a creative direction or a creative way to get me to actually pick up some literature and read. And so they landed on something that I don't know that you guys necessarily grew up with these, but I want to explain them to you because for me, they were pivotal. They were life-changing. Uh, these were a series of books kind of in a classic genre known as Choose Your Own Adventure, all right? Uh, here are the first three books that were written by this publisher at the time, The Abominable Snowman, Journey Under the Sea, and Space and Beyond. For a little dreamer that I was, I love these books, all right? Because you kind of got to read these books, and as you're reading through every 10, 20 pages, you come along to a point in the story where you as the reader, all right, were presented with a series of options, and you could decide what the main character was going to do. So as a reader, you're really engaged. It was really interactive because you actually had a say in how the story would unfold, all right? And so, for example, in Under the Sea, uh, you could have this moment in time, page 20 or so, where you come to a moment in, in which there's a giant octopus that was threatening your life, all right? And you had two decisions, all right? You could either A, stay in a cave and hide from the octopus, hoping he would just take off. Or B, you could make a run for the little subway, all right, for the little uh, submarine, all right, and hope to save your life and get away from the giant octopus, all right? What you didn't know is if you chose to stay in the cave, that when you turned to page 40, you immediately died, all right, because the cave became a waking volcano in which this lava trapped you and killed you, all right? What you didn't know is if you chose the submarine, you'd land on page 80, when she would be taken from that point on to a little underworld utopia with Starbucks, all right? Just kidding. All right, it didn't really exist at the time. Uh, but it went sharks were butlers. It was like a world that you couldn't even imagine or believe. It was just great. But every, in a sense, every 20 pages or so, you had a series of choices in which you could dictate the way the story unfolded. As a little emerging engineer, what I would do is I would find different alternatives to the story, and then I would kind of backtrack, try to reverse engineer, and figure out how I could get to the ending that I wanted. You could literally read these stories a hundred times, and they would have about 40 different endings. Some of the different endings, it seemed like even uh, trying to read it 20 different times, you couldn't ever avoid, all right? There were certain things that just you kind of kept coming back to, all right? These stories are fascinating to me, all right? I got so absolutely obsessed with knowing how to get to the ending that I wanted. So I would read over and over and over again, and every time it seemed like a new story. I want to submit to you guys that really as we think about this concept of decision making and searching for the will of God, that in many ways I think we approach them just like I as a kid approached a choose your own adventure story, all right? The sense that we have all these decisions is honestly like a, a decision tree, so to speak. That if I make this one decision that moves in this different direction, it leads to these different decisions. And all of a sudden, I make one wrong decision and our whole life, like a house of cards, comes collapsing down and we're forever out of the will of God. All right? For some of us, as we think about the will of God, as we think about decision making and determining what is God's will for our life, what is his calling on our life, we have all kinds of different understandings and ideas of how we do that. Or even what the will of God is. I will tell you guys, I don't think I've seen a generation that is more obsessed, more interested, more curious about what the will of God is than your generation. There are a few questions I get more than, hey, what is God's will for my life? 
Maybe if Brzezin says, hey, do I marry her? Do I not marry her or him? Do I date him or her? What job do I take? What city do I move to? What do I do when I graduate? What's my career? What major should I take? Should I take this class? Should I do summer school? Should I do camp? All the different decisions we make, all right? All kind of seems to come back to this giant umbrella concept in which we talk about determining the will of God. How do we make decisions that are according to the will of God? How do we do that? I think for many of us, we are absolutely assessed with the will of God. And I think we can dress it up however we want using great words like God's sovereignty, the will of God, calling, all right, all this kind of stuff. But I think for every single one of us is absolutely obsessed with the topic because really what we want is control, right? Really what we want is we want God to tell us where our life is heading and what will turn out to be the best possible outcome to our life that we could ever write up and imagine. And if God would just tell us how to get there, we'd be happy. And so we pray and we pray and we pray. We keep waiting and we keep waiting for some sense of an answer and a sense of a direction of where we're headed. We're absolutely obsessed with the topic because I think we really want control of life so that we can get the outcome that we want. And really it's an issue of control. And in some cases, it's an issue of a lack of faith in our life, not trusting that God will lead us as he sees fit. And we may be approaching this topic looking for something and expecting something that frankly, God may not be giving. God may not unfold. God may not reveal. God may not clarify for you and I The very answers to the questions that we're asking, we may not get those answers before we actually have to make a decision sometimes. So what do we do? I'll tell you guys, in college, I remember a couple girls, uh, sophomore year, who were great friends, uh, great sorority sisters, and they would go back and forth, and they both had an inkling and a like for a certain guy, all right? Uh, And his name was actually Will, all right? I will admit, even as a guy, this dude was a tall drink of water. Godly man, handsome, tall. I mean, everything you want. Young, strapping, all right? Everything, all right? Highly, uh, had high integrity, great leader, all right? Everyone was about him, all right? And these girls began to actually argue with one another as to who was going to date Will, all right? Which in and of itself has all kinds of problems, right? But there they're arguing with one another. And as friends are basically beginning to go back and forth at one point and going, hey, no, 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 you date him. No, 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 you date him. And then finally they decided, you know what? After they had prayed, all right, they decided they didn't want Will to come between their friendship because ultimately they recognized that he was God's will, all right? Now, all right, you with me? All right, now here's the deal. I think what we do with so many of these decisions is that we completely over-spiritualize them as if God has some greater care in the universe and to think through who we're gonna date tomorrow as if God has nothing better going on, all right? And so on one hand, we do know that God has this massive decree, this massive will, and yet we also know that God is intimately uh, acquainted with us and cares for the very details of the very hairs on our head. God has that kind of love, that kind of foresight, that kind of understanding. So how do we navigate through some of this stuff? What I want to do as we look through this story in the book of Esther this morning is I'll tell you guys, for you ladies, I'll tell you, Esther is everything I want you ladies to be in terms of decision-making and wrestling with the will of God. For you men, I'll tell you, Esther is probably double the man that many of us are in terms of her courage and her decisiveness. To a plague that has impacted a lot of the men, I think, in our college campuses of, of passivity, of inactivity, of anxiety and fear, Esther trumps many of us in terms of her own ability to discern the will of God and walk with God. Much of what Esther will be and much of what Esther will show you this morning is very much what I want for all of you guys, men and women alike. So men, don't let Esther as a woman uh, deter you from what we're going to see. What I want to do for us as we walk through this is I want you guys to basically to see at the very outset in a sense, what is this decision that Esther faces? I want to kind of backpedal with you guys a little bit, let you guys see exactly what it is the situation that Esther walked into. What was the decision she's facing? Then I want to show you guys a little bit about what we learn about her decision and then how we apply that to us. That's where we're going to head this morning, all right? 
a biblical case study, an actual example. As you kind of walk through the story, what you're going to see in verses three and four as we open the story is that the nation of Israel, the Jews in the land are absolutely mourning. They're all in sackcloth. They're all fasting because a decree has been issued by a man named Haman, who was an officer in the king's court who bought and paid for to motivate the king to write and issue a decree that would wipe out all of the Jews of the land, all right? So as Esther 4 opens up, we walk into this crisis, this national crisis in which Jews in the land have an edict on their heads for their complete annihilation and destruction, all right? In that situation, we're going to see a man named Mordecai who's going to come to a a lady named Esther in our story who's going to plead with Esther to approach the king and make a request on behalf of her people, the Jews. Who is Mordecai? Who is Esther? Mordecai is going to be the uncle to Esther. Esther is going to be his niece in a sense. They're going to be both related by blood, both Jews of the land. Uh, And in this sense, we're going to see as uh, the chapter opens up, or as the book opens up, Esther actually, we're going to see, is going to have an incredible amount of fear here in a minute. But who Esther is, as we look at the book of Esther, the book opens in chapter one, uh, ill issue arises with a queen who seems to betray the king. And so there's an opening in the court for a new queen, all right? And so what you have happening in chapters two and three really is uh, an ancient version of The Bachelor, all right? Uh, but king style, all right? And you have a king and women are being brought in. It's a pretty crazy, shady even uh, scenario and situation, all right? But basically what's going to happen is Esther is going to win this beauty pageant. She's going to win this deal and she's going to become queen. And so as queen, as a Jew, and no one knows that she's a Jew in the land, an issue goes out that all of her people are going to be wiped out. And Mordecai says to Esther, you have to do something. You have to go to the king and request that he would not do this, that he would actually pull back and not destroy the Jews. Esther's response is really interesting. I want you guys to notice again in verses 13 and 14, I want you guys to see her fear in this decision-making process. Notice what happens. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Esther in verse 11 is terrified that if she goes into the king, that she's going to be killed on the spot. The law of the land was if you went unapproached, unrequested to the king, the king had every right to actually kill you on the spot. And so Esther says, I've not been requested for 30 days. And yet Mordecai, you want me to go into the king and request of him, but I could get killed on the spot. Are you serious? She's looking at her situation. She's looking at this decision and she's absolutely fearful. And Mordecai will speak to that fear in verses 13 and 14. And he's going to identify, I think, for Esther and for you and I, much of the fear that exists as we look at this topic of decision-making and this topic of the will of God. Notice what he says, verse 13. Do not imagine that you are in the king's palace that you can escape any more than all the Jews. Esther had two options. She could speak up or she could be silent. What Mordecai is going to say to her is that whether you choose to speak up or you choose to stay quiet, either way, you do not control your life. In the midst of the decision-making process that Esther is looking at right here, Mordecai is going to speak to her very sovereignly, very insightfully to say, look, you have two choices and either choice you make, don't be caught up by the illusion that you control your life. It's not true. Whether you speak up or whether you're silent, your destruction may still come. You can't change that. And it's not just that she can't control her own circumstances. And that's what he says in verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai says, look, as you make a decision here about what you're going to do, realize that whether you choose to participate in this situation or not, God is still going to be sovereign and God is still going to accomplish his purposes. The opportunity that Esther has is to participate and to be a part of the plan. But if she pulls back, God will still accomplish his purposes. Esther's decisions do not control God. Esther's decisions can't control her life. They do not control God. Control is an illusion in life that we do not have. 
And as we wrestle with the will of God, as we wrestle with decision-making processes, let us realize this as we begin. You do not control your life. It's not that you are out of control. It's that there is a God who is in control, and the one who is in control is God, and it's not you. You can't control your life. You can't control God as well. And the last thing I want you guys to see, and I think this is one of the things that's most helpful as we think about decision processes and the will of God. Notice how Mordecai ends this section to Esther. Notice at the end of it, he says, And who knows whether you have not obtained royalty for such a time as this. Mordecai ends that section with a question. Who knows? Maybe God has put you in this very circumstance, this very situation for sovereign purposes, and he's going to use you in this place as you step forward to accomplish his will. But is it a statement or is it a question? It's a question. Does Mordecai know? No. Does Esther know? No. There are two things as you and I wrestle with the will of God and as we wrestle with decision processes that you and I have got to realize even as we begin. There are two things that are illusions. One is control and the second is certainty. Two things that are illusions for you and I. Control and certainty are absolutely elusive to you and I as we wrestle with the will of God and as we make decisions. So whatever we're going to do, however we're going to approach this, if you're going to think that you're going to gain control over your life or certainty over your life, you're going to be mistaken. (laughs) What God does as he reveals his will and as he calls us in to follow him and as we walk life out, whatever God will do, whatever we'll participate in experience, we will not get control and we will not get certainty. All right? Those are two things you've got to put as prerequisites in this whole discussion because they're key. Esther will not get either of those, nor do you and I. And in the midst of her fear, that's her fear. That's what she's wanting. She's wanting control and she's wanting certainty. And Mordecai is going to say, no, 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 no. You don't have those. You can't get those. God does not work in that way. He will not grant you control and he will not grant you certainty. He wants you to walk with him by faith. Trusting in the unseen, not in the seen. In many ways, as we think about the will of God, as we think about God's sovereignty, I will tell you, I think they are much more like a rear view mirror and not a crystal ball. But as you think about the will of God, as you think about uh, God's leading in your life, what you're going to learn over experience and over time is that you can often see what he's doing in the rear view as you've passed it, not as you move forward. If you want control and you want clarity moving forward, you're not going to get it. But if you're willing to recognize that often what God does in the way that he works in our life is is showing us in the rear view mirror, once we've made a decision and moved on, what he had, that you can get. Much of what God's sovereignty is is a rear view mirror. It's not a crystal ball. He's not a magic eight ball, which you shake up, ask a question to and get an answer. That's not how God works. That's often how we treat him though, right? Do I date her? Yes, all right, let's go, right? No, ah, what do I do, right? We just fall apart, all right? We're wrestling and often, I think, asking God for something that he's not going to give us, which is why we get so frustrated. We get so anxious. So what do we learn actually from Esther's decision, all right? How does Esther actually walk this out? She's going to walk this out incredibly and amazingly, all right? What do we see from her actual decision? I'm going to give you guys four basic ideas. I'm going to show them to you in Esther's decision, and I'm going to map them over to you and I in our decisions, all right? The first thing you're going to see in Esther's decision is this, consecration. Notice her response, uh, pick it up in verse 15. Speaking back to Mordecai, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. What you guys know is the first thing I think we see in Esther's life here is consecration. Her pursuit of prayer, is it before or after she's made a decision? Is it before or after? It's interesting to me as you see this, she's going to petition and invite a whole group of people to pray 
But she's already made a decision, all right? She's already made a decision. And in her decision, what you notice is she's essentially taken her life and she's put it on the altar of her relationship with God and she's allowed it to be burned up however it will go. She's going to go into the king and if she perishes, she perishes, but she's not controlling her life. She's fully handed it over to God and said, God, do with my life however you see fit, however you see fit. And then she invites men and women to pray, but not looking for a sign, not looking for some kind of writing in the clouds. She's already in a sense made a decision and she's asking men and women to pray on her behalf. Does Esther get a voice from God here? Does Esther get writing in the clouds? Does Esther get some kind of fleece out? Does Esther get some kind of supernatural sign as to what's going to happen? No. At least the text doesn't show us. What you're going to see here from Esther is that she's going to absolutely consecrate her life. She's going to set it aside and hand it over to God and say, God, do with me as you see fit. And as she does that, as she makes that decision, as she moves forward, the other thing you're going to see is she's going to have incredible courage with absolutely no clarity, right? She's going to show you incredible courage with absolutely no clarity. Notice chapter five, verse one, notice what she does. Now it came out on the third day after they've been done praying and fasting that Esther put on her royal robes and she stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's room and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the room opposite the entrance to the palace. Esther's going to march right on in with no supernatural sign as to what's going to happen, with no understanding of what's going to be the next step. She's landed on this decision tree. She's moved to page 40 of this Choose Your Own Adventure novel, and she has no idea what's happening next and no ability to work backwards in this decision and redo it, all right? She showed up at this moment, offered her entire life up to God and said, God, do with me as you see fit. And she walks right into the king's palace room with no idea what's happening next, (laughs) You know, I think for many of us, we want a sense exactly of what God is going to do in our life before we make a decision. I heard an analogy when I was in college, and I love this one. It's taking a little while for it to sink in, for me at least, is I think for many of us, we are like a boat on a dock, all right, as we look at our lives. And we're unwilling to tie our life off our boat, in a sense, off from the dock and, and to move out into the waters until we know exactly where God is going to send us. And so we wait at the dock, tied in, praying and praying and praying and waiting and asking for an answer, asking for a direction, And yet God doesn't provide it until we begin to unhook from the dock and begin to move out wherever God will lead, right? Why do we stay at the dock? Because there are some destinations and there are some pathways that we do not want and we may say no to, right? And so we stay tied to the dock until God is willing to show us what we would like our pathway to be. I think for many of us, what you and I have to begin to realize is that we got to untie ourselves from the dock and begin to move out, trusting that God will lead and give us all that we need moment by moment, but he doesn't give us a full five-year plan, right? Think about Abraham's life. God tells Abraham, I want you to leave your family, your country, and I want you to go out. But does God tell him where he's going? No, 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 right? He has no idea exactly where he's going. He has to just leave and go. I think God often does that to you and I. He asks us to follow but we have no sense of exactly where he's going to take us. He just wants to know, will we trust him along the way? Yet many of us stay back tied to the dock waiting for a five-year plan with all the I's dotted and the T's crossed, and yet God doesn't provide that, so we stay tied to the dock and we never leave and we never move out. Esther's going to move out. She's going to step forward into an abyss that's completely unclear to her, showing incredible courage, because I think for Esther, there's an ultimate thing here that happens that I think is really helpful, all right? It's this. Then there's going to be a collision of considerations that matter to Esther. God has not given her any clarity exactly as to what's going to happen in the outcome. But she said, God, hey, here's my life. Take me and lead me as you see fit. 
But what you have happening here is a collision of, I think, a series of considerations that are really, really helpful. I'm going to give you four of these considerations that when they come together, they're like legs of a stool that really give you a sturdy base to make a decision off of, all right? Here's the four that I think mattered for Esther, and I'll apply these to us a little bit later. If you guys want to write these down, you're more than welcome to, all right? Here's the four things that I think collided together for Esther that made all the sense in the world for her and her willingness to move forward, although she had no clarity. It was this. She had an incredible sense and a unique sense of gifting and background, a unique passion and burden, a unique opportunity, and unique counsel. These four things come together in an intersection or a collision that makes all the sense for Esther, all right? What do I mean by this? First of all, point one, gifting and background. What was unique about Esther's gifting and background? It was this. Chapter two tells us that she was, chapter two, verse seven tells us that she was literally beautiful of form and face. Chapter two, verse nine tells us that she pleased the king, that she was a not dead drag out. I mean, she just blew the doors off, all right? She was beautiful, right? That God had made her that way for a specific purpose to accomplish a specific place. And so here she is in this moment and God has led her to this place. She's not just beautiful, but she's going to be the only Jew in the king's palace, all right? She's the only one there, all right? She's going to have a unique gifting and a unique background that no one else shared, all right? She blows everyone else away. Number two, she's got a passion and a burden. Notice chapter five again. Notice verse three. Notice what the king says to her as she comes in. Verse three. Then the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be given to you. He says, looking at her visually, he says, what is troubling you? There's a movement of her soul and a passion of her heart that is absolutely morphing her physical countenance. There's a passion if it's for a good thing or a burden if it's for a negative thing that she's moved. Chapter uh, five, verse five, notice the king says, bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. Uh, The king recognizes that for Esther, there's a unique passion, a unique desire, a unique burden. And that for Esther, you have this gifting and background. You have this desire coming together into a unique opportunity that Mordecai recognizes. Mordecai says there at the end of chapter four, uh, maybe you've come to such a time as this for a purpose, right? Maybe God's delivered you, handpicked you for this moment at this time in this place. And what's happening here is you have this gifting, this desire, and this opportunity meeting in an intersection that shows potentially the calling, the will, and the direction of God. Uh, Yet I think what we often do is we look at the fourth one, which is counsel. When Mordecai says, here's what I think you should do. We take these four different things that I think if you take them collectively and put them together, they're the four legs of a stool that would give you a very, very sturdy base for decision process. What we often do with these four is we lean on one of them almost to the extent and the exclusion of the other ones. For example, let's say you had a unique desire for something, all right? So for example, let's say for me, I wanted to be uh, an NFL quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, all right? As soon as Romo's retired. I can have all the desire in the world. I don't have the ability or the unique background, right? There's nothing in me physically that's going to be able to do that, all right? It doesn't matter the desire I have. Desire alone is faulty, all right? Some of you guys, uh, we love to talk about open and closed doors, all right? Even think about Esther's situation. Did she have an open door to come to the king? Mm, I'm not sure, right? She's got a unique opportunity. She has access as the queen, so maybe. But she's not been petitioned for 30 days, and if she goes in unannounced, she's dead, right? <laughs> that doesn't seem like an open door to me. So we talk all, all the time about open and closed doors. I think we put way too much stock in them because they're very subjective. Counsel is as well, right? How many of you had roommates who've given you absolutely god-awful advice, right? <laughs> it didn't turn out well at all, right? You said, go date that girl. That was, that was a train wreck, right? Whatever. Counsel, open, closed doors, opportunities, desires, passions, gifts. Sometimes we take all of these and if we put them together and collide them into one place as they intersect, we get a great place that God is often moving in a unique way. But sometimes we just take one of them or just two of them and we end up in a very subjective place. 
for Esther, these four things will collide in a unique way. And I think when you take that combined with the last thing I want you to see about Esther here, uh, I think she also had a confidence in God's calling. I think she was clear about the will of God and the things that were the most important. She knew from the Old Testament, she knew that God had a unique relationship with the people of Israel. That God had made specific, exclusive promises to ethnic Israel. That God loved his people. And that those promises were to an ethnic people for all time. That their destruction and annihilation from the face of the earth was not the will of God. She was clear of that. And so she moves forward because she knows what is the will of God in generality. She doesn't know how, what will be the outcome for her. But she knows this is what is God's will and I will move towards that and trusting that God will allow my particulars to be and unfold however he will see fit. But I know this is what God desires. This is the will of God. So she moves forward. I think you have these four things coming together for Esther. All right, so what does it mean for us? All right, what what do we do with this? I kind of walk you guys through, I think, four closing points for you guys. The first is this. As you're wrestling with decisions, as you're wrestling with what God may have, if you're trying to determine what is God's will, let me challenge you to first consecrate yourself. Consecrate yourself. I love this passage in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to give you guys just a few parts of it, but I would highly encourage you guys to go back and read it later. Matthew 6 verses 25 all the way to 34. We find Jesus saying, Do not be worried about your life as to whether you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. The birds of the field are clothed way better than that, and they don't worry about a thing. So if God clothes them, why won't he clothe you? Why are you worrying? In contrast to your worry, here's what I want you to do. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says to an audience who's worried, who's fearful in the decision, fearful about their future, fearful and wanting control. He says, look, don't worry. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all those things will be added to you. That if you put first things first, you'll get first and you'll get second. But when our worry puts second things first, we lose the first and we lose the second, right? Another passage I think is incredibly helpful along these lines also is Romans chapter 12, verses one and two. Paul says it like this. Present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will, might be able to prove the, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. A couple things I want you guys to notice about Romans 12 that I think is really helpful. How do you and I prove what the will of God is? What are the things that we are to do? The first is this. Present your bodies a living and a holy sacrifice, right? This is exactly what Esther does. She takes her life, she puts it up on an altar, and to the individual who will do that, you're going to be able to hear and see more clearly what the will of God is. But to those who are trying to maintain control and wanting certain kinds of outcomes for their life, to that individual, their view is going to be murky and unclear. They're going to have a hard time seeing the will and the plan of God. Also to the one who, is, uh, who does not conform to this world, that if we can lay our lives on the altar in worship, and if we can remain pure in the world and renew our minds, then in those three movements, we get a, a clearer sense of how you and I can discern what the will of God is. I'll give you guys an analogy for what I mean by this and what I think is going on in Romans 12 and Matthew 6. So guys, I, in different phases, have picked up the game of golf, all right? And I often find myself incredibly frustrated by the game of golf, all right? I'm kind of the guy who plays the course and sees a lot of the course, side to side, side to side, all right? I get way more shots than anybody else, all right? And typically, for some point in time, I begin to realize this is not my hobby, and I get really, really frustrated, all right? Had some issues freshman year, swinging golf clubs in my bag, breaking clubs, having anger issues, all right? I've matured, kind of. But I've still realized this isn't the game for me, all right? So a couple years ago, I thought, I really want to get back in the game. So I went to uh, a place in town, and I got an instructional lesson, all right? And the guy takes a look at me, has me do a few swings, and he goes, hey, you, you had a major baseball background, didn't you? I was like, yeah, I play baseball all the time. And in baseball, the key is you keep your weight back as you swing, all right? In golf, it's the absolute opposite. If you keep your weight back, you're dead, all right? But if you keep your weight moving forward, you swing appropriately, all right? So for me, weight transfer is a 
giant issue in my golf swing. It's the entire base of the whole swing and the whole process. So for me, as he looked at my golf swing, what he told me was, for the next two weeks, I want you to practice without the ball. <laughs> Incredibly insulting, all right? You're so jacked up, we just need to take the ball away from you. Which is basically what he did, all right? So the next two weeks, he's like, all I want you to do is work on weight transfer. So I'm just sitting there without a ball, like just doing this all day. I felt incredibly lame, all right? But here was the issue for me, all right? The entire base of my swing was off. So it didn't matter where my hands were. It didn't matter my back swing. It didn't matter whether my hands were rotated through. Because my weight base was off, everything else was askew and nothing else stood a chance. For us, as we look at the decision-making processes and then we look at the, what the will of God is, if you and I are not remaining unstained from the world, and if we have been unwilling to put our life on the altar of, of worship to say, God, take me as you will, the entire base of the whole process is off and it doesn't matter what you do from there. You will not be able to discern the will of God for your life if you are moving in that kind of place. If you're moving in impurity with the world, looking just like the world looks, And if you're trying to control your life and holding on and holding back from what God may do and where he may want to lead you, you're going to miss and have a really hard time hearing him clearly. The entire picture is messed up and it's murky. That's the base. That's the beginning spot is you have to come to a place as you walk with God realizing, hey, my life is not mine. I have to take this life. I have to put it on the altar of worship and allow God to consume it however he will. And I promise you in that moment, he will take you and he will lead you in places that you could never have imagined that frankly will be way better than anything you could have written up. It doesn't matter how many times I would have gone back to those choose your own adventure stories, trying to force a different outcome. I never could make it happen. The same is true for you and I. As we're trying to control life, it will never land us in the place that God ultimately wants for us because we're warring, we're pushing against him. We're not going to be able to see. So the first place that you and I often begin where we have to begin is that same place of consecration. Untying our life from the dock, so to speak, and allowing the boat of our life to move out and then waiting for God to lead us and direct us. Not waiting by the dock, wondering whether we're going to like the destination or not. We've got to move out. Second thing, uh, and this may seem a little bit uh, heretical to some of you guys, stop waiting. Some of you guys, I'd say stop praying. I literally mean that. And start trusting God. For some of you guys, I've heard of people who will pray three months about a dating decision. God help me. Seriously. Like, the, for many of us, what we're doing is we're waiting and we're waiting on an answer from God. And the only way that he often provides it is as we move out in life and experience. And then we begin to see looking back what he's doing. We're just constantly waiting and waiting, thinking he's going to give us that five-year plan before we even make a decision. For some of us, I'm going to tell you guys, you need to stop praying. Because for some of you, your prayer lives are a desire for clarity and control and you can mask it up and you can dress it up however you want, but you're wanting something that frankly is contrary to what prayer is all about, which is not my will, but your will, right? Which is, hey, here's my life. Lead me in dependence as you see fit. For some of us, I'm going to tell you guys as you walk this out, I'm going to challenge you guys to actually stop waiting, (laughs) Move out in life and allow God to lead you as you move out. And for some of you, that may even mean stop praying. (laughs) Not stop praying entirely, but move out and be praying as you move out. But stop praying for an answer. Stop praying for this sense of a writing in the sky. Move out and allow God to provide that clarity as you move out and experience the different things that you would walk into. God will lead you. God will direct you, all right? But sometimes we're looking for it in the wrong ways. Two different extremes I see in this, all right? One is uh, we fall on this paralysis by analysis deal where we're waiting, we're waiting, and we get so anxious, we get so paralyzed that we can't do anything. Or for some of us, we go on the flip side of that. We've prayed, we felt like we've heard God, and now we feel like God has told us. Does God speak in that way? Does God want you waiting forever? Those are two extremes, and I want to kind of move you guys back toward the middle and say, 
Mordecai says to Esther, who knows? Maybe God's put you right here. He doesn't know, (laughs) right? Esther is going to go walk into the king's room. Does she know what's going to happen? No. Again, control, clarity, two illusions. Two things that we're wanting that we cannot have in decision-making processes as we wrestle with and try to discern the will of God. So as you walk it out, realize that you cannot know for certainty until you begin to move out. And then your confidence just grows and grows and grows. And stop waiting completely paralyzed on the sideline, wondering what God has. Begin to move out, and then you're going to begin to see what he has as you move out. Third thing here I'll give you guys. uh, Explore your own collision of considerations, all right? These four very things that I think were present for Esther, I think are are very helpful little tool even as you make decisions. Do you know what your unique gifting and background is? Do you know what are you passionate about, all right? What are you uniquely gifted at? What are you uniquely passionate at? Thirdly, what are the opportunities that are before you? And fourthly, what has the counsel from others told you? All right. Often we lean on one of these to the exclusion of the other. Making a decision about summer, run to mom and dad. They tell you one thing, God bless them, love them. But they may not be looking at a bigger picture at times, right? They may not be seeing certain things. They may have certain blind spots. You need to diversify your counsel. You need to diversify the factors and the considerations that you're taking in as you look at a decision process. God has uniquely gifted you in a way that is different from everyone else in this room which is why he may have something very different for you than he has for anyone else in this room, right? Your gifting, your background is different. Your passions are different. What makes you tick doesn't make me tick. What crushes your heart and your soul doesn't crush my heart and my soul or the other people in this room. God has uniquely gifted your capacities, your competencies, your passions in a way to be perfectly utilized for his purposes. One of the things that I'm amazed over time and experience is looking back in my own past and realizing that God has wasted nothing in my past. They're all like breadcrumbs that are going to lead to something in the future that he's going to bring back. In a sense, he's always recycling back through what he's already done. That all of those past experiences are never random, but they're going to be folded into whatever he's going to have for you moving forward. You may not see that line in a linear kind of sense, but again, as you begin to move forward, and you begin to look back, you begin to realize how he's reutilizing some things that you've walked through. Your gifting, your background are huge. Your passions are huge. The opportunities in front of you are huge as well. And the council of men and women is huge. I challenge you guys, if you're looking at yourself, maybe you're a freshman, maybe you don't know what some of these things are. Uh, the great thing that you can do as you walk through the life of the church, as you walk through life on campus, is beginning to sort through and wrestle with, hey, who am I? How am I gifted? How am I wired? What is it I love? And the pursuit of those things is not necessarily selfish, especially if God's wired that heart that way, to potentially pursue the very thing that he would have you to pursue because he's made you to love that. Um, last thing here. This is kind of where we're going to wrap up. Major on his revealed will. More often than not, when we think about decision-making processes, as we think about the will of God, what we're wrestling with are very, frankly, non-moral and small decisions. Most of what we're wrestling with, most of sometimes even what we're praying for, are non-moral and, frankly, small decisions in the scheme of life. This may seem heretical to you, but what you major in, seems huge now, not that crazy down the road. This date, this dating situation now, Okay, and that's maybe different. It will matter a lot. You'll marry that person potentially, all right? Uh, But whatever, uh, camp, summer, different things, major class, whatever. It seems giant to us. So giant that we get so consumed, so stressed, so anxious that we get locked in and paralyzed sometimes by the decisions. But really what I think we begin to do is we wrestle with the will of God on very non-moral and small decisions. We've really diminished much of what has been revealed to us about his will in the scriptures. (laughs) Most of what we're wrestling with, most of what we're asking is bypassing answers to the will of God that we already get in the scriptures. And what I want to do as we wrap up this morning is I want to show you what we do know without a shadow of a doubt. 
What we do know as to what is the will of God, what is that? What is the will of God? What can we say without a shadow of doubt is the will of God? I'm going to give you guys a few quick places here that we'll go. First is this, and I think this is kind of a banner over all of the things that we're going to say. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, that in every decision that you make, the lens that should be on it is whether it will glorify God. Major, dating, camp, mission trip, uh, what you're going to eat for lunch, I don't care, whatever. <laughs> that the lens that it determines whether that is potentially in the will of God is always going to be whether it glorifies God or not. If a decision or a major or something does not glorify God, then it's clearly not going to be in the will of God most likely, Right? How do we know whether it glorifies God or not? It's a broader conversation, but that is going to be the banner that is going to be over all of the will of God statements we're going to see in the scriptures, is whether it glorifies God. And I love 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 too, because it blows away with this sense of a divide of the sacred from the secular, or the divide from that which is godly and in a sense worldly, right? Whatever you do, not Bible study only or church only, but whether you're eating, whether you're drinking, and whatever thing you're doing, your career as well, whatever it is, it should honor God. And the things that honor God are not always necessarily explicitly spiritual either, right? Any career you could have could honor God. It doesn't have to be a pastor or a missionary, for heaven's sake. Any career. The question is, how will that career honor God, all right? So let me give you guys, in a sense, I think, a few key passages. We don't have time for these. I would encourage you guys to write these down. I think it would be a great place to kind of think through this afternoon in terms of the will of God and what you do with this talk. Here's the things that we do know. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 12. Here is the will of God, all right? To know God and to bear fruit. Great passage, all right? Wrestling with as Paul prays for that church, praying that they would know the will of God. He's going to talk about them knowing the knowledge of God and bearing fruit. Very much what the will of God is, is that you would know God and that you would bear fruit in life. It's very, very simple, all right? If you want to know what the will of God is, it is that in whatever decision, dating, whatever you're doing, whatever you're looking at, the will of God is that through that major, through that decision, through that dating relationship, through that meal, that you would grow in your knowledge of God and that you would have an opportunity to bear fruit. It's that simple. Uh, let me give you guys another one. How do we go about that, all right? If that's what we're trying to do, then how do we go about that? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, we'll talk about the will of God being that we would be filled with the Spirit. How do we know God? How do we bear fruit? Here, here is your method. Here is your means. It's being filled by the Spirit. That this is the will of God, Paul will say in Ephesians 5. To be filled with the Spirit of God. To be influenced by the Spirit as we walk life out. Let me give you guys a few, uh, three more quick, kind of very tangible, hey, here is the will of God. Here is what we know without a shadow of doubt that we are to do. Here is the fruit that we are to bear. A very familiar one for you guys, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 and 20, to make disciples. That what is the will of God is that we would make disciples of all nations. If you want to know what your life is about, vocation, whatever vocation that you're in, whatever marriage that you will be in one day, it is that you would make disciples. My, job, my question for you guys will be, how will you in whatever career you're going to have Whatever marriage you're going to have, how are you going to make disciples? You can make disciples in any career by and large. The question is, do you have the lens to see that career with that kind of mindset? Because that is the will of God. Fourth, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and 5, will talk about the will of God being your sanctification or your growth in holiness. That what God wills for your life, what God desires is that you would be sanctified, that you would be grown, that you would not just know God, all right, and have a saving relationship with him, but that you would be made like him that you would grow in holiness. And so he says in 1 Thessalonians, Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians, control your vessel in, uh, in honor, right? To lead a life of not sexual immorality, but to actually grow in holiness, to be sanctified, to be more and more like the image of God. That is God's will for you. Again, wherever you eat, whatever career you're going to have, whatever dating relationship you're going to be in, the question I'll ask you is, are those things enabling you and moving you further and further in the process of being made holy and made in the image of Jesus Christ? Lastly, fifthly, 
First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18, we'll talk about the will of God as, as that which in which we're called to rejoice, to pray without ceasing, and to give thanks. Here's five passages that all speak explicitly of the will of God. This is the will of God. And I think for many of us, as we wrestle with the will of God, as we make decisions on very small, non-moral things, often what we're doing is we are diminishing what is the revealed will of God as we're asking, frankly, secondary questions. And sometimes we're so obsessed with the secondary questions that we really miss the, the primary calling that is clear on our life that is the will of God. That Esther recognized, hey, here is the clear will of God. How I fit into that exactly, I'm not sure, but I'm going to step forward in that trajectory and in that direction, trusting that God will work the outcome out as he sees fit in terms of my personal circumstances. But Esther was moving toward that big fat target, all right? To know God, to bear fruit, to fulfill the purposes of God, to make disciples of all nations in the power of the Holy Spirit, all right? And as you and I set our trajectory toward that big overarching goal, the details will just take care of themselves because we'll land ourselves in a position to clearly see and hear the will of God. Not holding control, not holding and wanting certainty of that which we cannot be certain of, and not forcing and wanting control of a circumstance and an ending to our story that frankly, He's got a better ending too if we would just let him lead and let him be the author of our life. What we think is best, frankly, often isn't best. And we end up something very short-changed. I want to end for you guys on a quote from Kevin DeYoung in a book called Just Do Something. I think he nails it right here. He says this, that expecting God to reveal some hidden will of direction is an invitation to disappointment and indecision. We just keep waiting and waiting, asking a question that we're not going to get an answer to until we're willing to move out. Trusting in God's will of decree is good. Following his will of desire is obedient. But waiting for God's will of direction is a mess. The better way is the biblical way. Seek first the kingdom of God and then trust that he will take care of our needs even before we know what they are and where we're going. All right. What Kevin's saying there and what we're trying to say from the book of Esther this morning is again, hey, what is the revealed will of God? It's to know God, to make God known to be made like him as we grow more and more in the image of God, giving thanks, praying without ceasing and doing all that we can in our life to bring him the greatest glory and the greatest honor. That is the will of God. How do the rest of the particular take care of that and fit into that? I'm not sure, nor are you, right? And God may not show you until you've moved forward and he's allowed you to see how he's worked circumstances out as you look backwards. And yet we sometimes just wait and we wait and we wait And what I want to challenge you to do is begin to, in a sense, demystify this whole will of God thing, all right? Stop over-spiritualizing it in some ways and begin to just walk forward, trusting that if you keep aiming at the big goals, the small goals will take care of themselves and you will land in the place able to see what he has because you're not chasing after something else. That's my heartbeat for you guys. Frankly, I feel like we are wrestling with this issue every single day of our lives. (laughs) And we've trumped it up to be something absolutely huge we become so honestly intimidated by it, frankly, sometimes so overwhelmed by it that we really just can't even move forward at all. And what I'm hoping to do is, in a sense, remove some of the clutter, simplify things a little bit, bring things back down to a normal level that you can move and you can walk out life with. The reality is the sovereignty of God is robust enough to handle your mistakes. The sovereignty of God is robust enough to handle whatever misdecisions you may make. Whether Esther speaks or whether she's silent, God will still accomplish redemption and deliverance for his people because that was the will of God. How do we participate in and fit into the plan of God? I do not know. 
but I know that we have an opportunity to participate as to how those outcomes come out and the decision tree that unfolds, I don't know. Nor do you know. But you don't have to know to trust him and to walk with him. And so stop asking some of those questions and begin to move forward in faith, trusting that he'll lead you as he sees fit and he'll use your life as he desires. And frankly, to an extent and to an outcome that is way greater and grander than anything that you could imagine or a story that you could write and that you could determine. Let me pray for you guys. Lord, we are sheep who need a shepherd. (laughs) Lord, we're so desperate to know and so desperate to have control over our circumstances, so desperate to have certainty over our life and what's happening tomorrow. Yeah, the reality is we don't know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. James will say that we're just a vapor that has gone that fast. That all that we can say is if God would will it, we'll do this and we'll do that. And so Lord, we come before you this morning, not paralyzed, not hopeless, but confident that there is one who is the author of our story, who is sovereign and who holds all of life together. That life is not random, but that life is very much under your orchestrated control. That you are sovereign, that you are moving all of human history toward a climax that involves our life. And Father, I thank you that your grace is sufficient to handle our missteps. That your grace is sufficient to handle our fears or our inadequacies and our selfish agendas and our prerogatives. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would allow us to look at Jesus Christ, him him who was crucified on our behalf, him who was put on a cross and his life was burned up and consumed as a sacrifice for us to know you and have a relationship with you. And for those of us who are here this morning, if we don't know you, if we've not yet entered into that saving relationship, it doesn't matter who we major, it doesn't matter uh, who we marry, it doesn't matter what we do, where we go to eat for lunch today. What matters is that there's a decision that we can make today to know your son, Jesus Christ, and to be confident of life eternal forevermore. Father, if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, I pray that you'd move us to that place today to make that decision to know you and enter into a relationship with you for maybe for the first time. For those of us who have made that decision, Lord, I pray that you'd give us clarity as to your will. That you'd give us courage to not control life even when we cannot have certainty as well. And that you'd allow us to walk with you in faith when things are unseen, trusting that what you have in store and what you are doing is grander and greater than anything we can imagine or anything we could control. Lord, I thank you and I love you. Lord, I pray that you'd give us grace, that you would move in us and that you'd lead us as you see fit. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.